Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Motherwell, the Motherhood Project podcast. This is your host and founder of the Motherhood Project, Jen Delmer. Today, we are going to be talking about ears, noses, and throats. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because no one talked to me about this before I had children. And as it turns out, it would be a very large topic um, and long-term issue in my life. So I am the guest on the show today. I'm going to be sharing a little bit about my experience with my three children. Um, Yeah, and beyond, you know, the specifics of ears, noses, and throats, I want to talk a little bit about advocating for our kids, um, which is often easier said than done. I know it can be a challenge to speak up in certain arenas, but I want to just discuss the importance of that as well as talk to you about kind of the nitty gritty of what it means if you do have a child um, that has issues with their hearing or speech. So yeah, we're going to get into it. Thank you for joining me and I hope that you find something informative or noteworthy, even if it doesn't pertain to you specifically. I'm hoping that you will gain some information that you might even be able to pass along to a mama you love. So thanks for tuning in and let's get going. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show, guys. And just before we get started on ears, noses, and throats, um, just a quick hello and welcome to any new listeners. It's been a hot minute since I've put up an episode. There's been so much going on here um, in our world, including tick bites and testing for Lyme disease and house renovations and just all sorts of stuff. I feel like the summer has been (laughs) a bit crazy. Uh, The fall is going to be probably equally as crazy, but hoping that things settle into a bit more of a routine, if that's a thing these days, we will see. (laughs) So um, ears, noses, and throats. I want to talk about several aspects of this. Um, And first off, I just want to like talk about hearing. Hearing tests, what goes down in the hospital when you have a newborn, um, and all of that. So one thing I'll preface this all with is that, of course, I am not a medical professional. Um, I always certainly encourage you to seek consult from your HCP, your healthcare practitioner. And then where all things ears, noses, and throats go, you're going to want to get a referral to um, a specialist, an ENT. Um, if you're in our local area, then I do have an excellent one that I would be happy to um, refer you to as well. Okay, so I think perhaps it's good to know also that hearing stuff, it can be genetic or hereditary. I know for me, like me personally, when I was young, when I was a child, I had like chronic ear infections. Um, My family is a family of swimmers. We were always in the pool. So it was oftentimes like a different kind of ear infection. It's not the same as when there's um, like fluid in the ear or swimmer's ear where that lands is different than fluid that's trapped in the ear, let's say from birth. However, 
chronic ear infections as a child. On my husband's side, there's also ear stuff. So it's possible that we just have, you know, faulty uh, eustachian tubes being passed down to our children. But two out of our three children have had problems with their ears. So we'll just, I don't know, chalk it up to bad luck, maybe genes, who knows, right? All right. So when you have a baby in hospital, you will typically have a hearing screen. Now, if you're having a home birth or birth somewhere else, I'm actually not sure at what point your baby's hearing is tested. So that's actually something I would love to hear from you on. Let me know um, what that looks like for, for those of you that have had a birth not in hospital. But typically what happens is shortly after you've given birth, um, they come in and they do a little hearing test on your teeny baby. They put tiny little things in their ears um, and they do a little screen and it's quick and totally painless, harmless. um, And that's it. So my almost nine-year-old, when he was born, he passed his screening in the hospital. And I mean, that was it. He didn't have to receive any type of follow-up. I think when they start kindergarten, there's, you know, a bit of observation and screening that goes on. Um, But he he was fine. There was no fluid in his ears. He didn't have any of the issues that I'm about to tell you about. He was also a C-section baby. Um, This is going to be important just in the sense that it is often said, I mean, I've been told this by many people, that it could potentially be fluid in the ears that lingers could potentially be, um, you know, because of the fact that I had cesarean sections. Um, When you have a C-section, the baby does not pass through the birth canal. Obviously, it's not, baby's not being born vaginally. So the compression and the squeezing that would take place in that scenario uh, doesn't take place in a C-section, right? They just cut you open, take baby out. And, you know, yes, there's some suctioning that happens, but the process for the baby is different. So that is also maybe a thing. I have heard, you know, both sides of that. Um, Like, yes, that probably has to do with it. And no, it's not consistent. So my firstborn was a C-section, no problems with his ears. The next two babies born, both C-sections, both issues with their ears. (laughs) So again, I don't really know what to make of it. Uh, It's just something for you to consider. So fast forwarding to my second baby, my daughter, Quinn, when she was born in hospital, she did not pass her initial hearing screen. So while we were still in the hospital. Now, at that point, they they tell you, no big deal, you'll be discharged, and then you'll get called into the health unit to audiology, and you'll repeat the test. It's not uncommon for babies to fail that initial screen and then pass the next one, right? It's um. It's just like when they're born, they're teeny tiny and they are still clearing fluid and stuff is still changing. So we thought, okay, great. We'll go for a follow-up and we'll see what happens. And she'll probably pass and it's no big thing. So we went for our (laughs) follow-up, went for our follow-up with the audiology department and they do another test. I mean, this is still baby's really 
young. I'm trying to remember, like, when do they do that test? It's not long after you've been home. So Quinn did not pass that test. So there's a few things they're looking for. They're looking for fluid in the ears, number one, which they can see by looking in there usually. And then they do a test where they're putting either little things in their ears or these little earmuff things over their ears, which are really cute. I'd love to actually link up some pictures of the testing that um, we had done. And then they're also testing, they want to test for uh, nerve damage potentially. So when there's fluid in the ears, it's not necessarily a big deal if sound is kind of available or accessible beyond that, beyond where the fluid is. So they test the nerve uh, situation and that part was fine for her. So we knew it wasn't like a major issue and that it was fluid related. However, they want to do more testing. So we go to the health unit, audiology, they do the second screen. She does not pass that screen. So then a few weeks later, we're called in again for more extensive testing, at which point fluid is still there. So if you're imagining time going by and the hope that maybe this fluid is clearing over that initial time frame, didn't happen. She failed those subsequent tests. At that point, they recommend a referral to the ENT. So GP refers to the ENT, and then you go to see the specialist. So our specialist we have been seeing since my daughter was uh, less than six months old. Okay. And what that entails is it's basically a checkup every three months, <laughs> every three months. And you're also getting follow-up appointments with audiology as well. So lots of appointments. It can be stressful. However, if you have a great ENT, our ENT runs such a great practice that you would go in, we would go in there, we would be seen right away. It would be so quick in and out, no waiting. You know, there's sort of this idea that when you go to a specialist office, you're going to be waiting for an hour. I literally think in all of the years we've been going to the ENT, which is so many now, my daughter is six, almost seven, and we've been going consistently. Uh, we have never waited more than five minutes. So very positive experience in that regard. Uh, initial testing with the ENT. He looks, he sees fluid, he does testing, he sees fluid. Now, the general recommendations for a baby with fluid in the ears is to just watch, watch and see what happens. As the baby grows, often their eustachian tubes will open up, clear the fluid, and it doesn't, not, it doesn't necessarily become an issue. Now, if you're thinking kind of what are the issues that could occur, it would be that the fluid doesn't clear, right? And then you're looking at getting tubes placed in surgically to clear the fluid and keep like that opening, that airspace available. So spoiler alert, that is what happened with us. Um, my daughter did have tubes placed, but not until she was two. Okay. And so this is the thing. It's a surgical procedure. So our ENT, and I would venture to say probably most ENTs are conservative with 
you know, surgery for babies. So the recommendation is to wait, wait and see what happens. Um, If the fluid hasn't cleared within the first year, what starts to happen is the fluid starts to thicken up and there's a lesser chance that um, it's going to clear on its own because it becomes this like sticky substance, which I mean, it's not great. So we're being followed by the ENT. Every few months, we're going to the audiology department at the health unit as well, being tested there. And those two things are happening regularly. So you just get used to building in these extra appointments to your life, bringing the toddler along, right? My son was um, was just a little guy at the time and coming along to all of this. So when my daughter became... When she turned, well, I guess probably one and a half, we made the decision that, yes, we're planning to do the tubes because the fluid is still there. She never had any ear infections. So not one ear infection. There was nothing ever painful going on for her. It was simply that the fluid was there. And then at some point, the question is, is it impacting speech? So as speech develops, you know, one, one and a half, getting close to two, um, you know, we certainly noticed that maybe she wasn't developing her speech as much as my son had at that point. It's hard because you don't want to compare because kids are different. You never know. But the thought was that, yes, this is potentially impacting her speech. So around one and a half, we decided, you know, we'll go on the wait list for surgery when she turns two we'll make the decision then, right? Because we want her to be in a good place before she goes to preschool when she turns three. So that's what happened. She turned two in December and then early the following year, I believe it was in January, uh, she had surgery to put tubes placed. The surgery itself is so quick. It's so quick. Um, But it's, I mean, for me, surgery for my two-year-old was challenging emotionally, most definitely. So we were there at the hospital. My husband was the one that went in with her when they um, put her to sleep and um, kind of, you know, he was there when they put her to sleep, obviously for like comfort measures and it was all good. She was fine. And then I was there when she woke up, which I mean, when a baby wakes up from surgery, they feel quite sick and not well. So there was a lot of crying and that was challenging too, but we made it through and it's, it's the same day procedure, have the surgery very quick, home the same day. Um, there's not much follow-up unless there's complications. We had no complications. So what happens in that procedure is the ENT makes an incision, clears out the fluid, and then places these teeny tiny tubes in the ears, which will allow for airflow and ventilation and hopefully keep that um, keep that space open so that no more fluid collects there to cause a problem. The tubes themselves fall out on their own, usually within a year, year and a half. So the whole time that the tubes are in, you're also going to see the ENT <laughs> and the audiologist. So still every few months going going through this routine. It's just at this point, it's just, um, it's part of your routine and it was really no big deal. So the tubes worked great for her. Again, there was no residual issues with fluid, never had a single ear infection. Um, it was, it was pretty great. And we felt great that we did the tubes. Excellent. We noticed that her speech was like immediately improving. We noticed that her hearing was improving 
honestly, like (laughs) probably the day we got home. And so in a sense, I felt badly. I felt guilty that we had waited until she was two because it was so obvious that she could hear everything now. You never really know with a small child, with a baby, how well they can hear because they can't tell you, right? And even when she was two, she couldn't, you know, tell us, but she would cover her ears. Things were loud for her once she had her sense of hearing and then like her full sense of hearing. And then her speech, her speech was developing pretty quickly from there. So she started preschool. Everything was great uh, until we realized and with our, our preschool teacher that, you know, her speech was a bit delayed or that not necessarily delayed, but that she had learned to say sounds um, inaccurately. Certain sounds she just had not been hearing properly. So she learned them the wrong way. So then the task becomes sort of un unlearning it, right? Teaching her a whole different way, which is when we sought out speech therapy. So we thought we sought out speech therapy, private speech therapy. Um, around that time, I want to say she was, you know, three first year preschool, maybe second year preschool. And this was sort of in preparation for kindergarten. Um, we We want her to be going into kindergarten, of course, not behind Um, being able to be confident. She was quite shy. She didn't always participate in class, I think probably because she was unsure, maybe unsure of what she was saying, and then certainly unsure of how she was communicating. And this did become a bit of a trend where she would not speak up because she was really self-conscious about saying things the wrong way, um, getting things wrong, that type of thing. So private speech therapy, is available. We have extended benefits that would cover not very many sessions, but it was something. So we were able to get started with that, able to get an an idea, a baseline of where she was at and get some suggestions on how to help her, how to support her and what we might be looking at. And that again was also a pretty positive experience other than it's stressful. Now I am someone who also um, has dealt with postpartum anxiety, um, postpartum depression. So this, it was a trying time. My daughter Quinn, specifically in addition to the speech and the hearing and the surgery, she also had other stuff going on, food allergies, and she had plagiocephaly. And so we were also going to physio and we were seeing specialists at um, Children's Hospital. And there was just a lot going on with her. She was very fussy. She cried all the time, um, which was very unlike our firstborn. So I was already in a state of like, what is happening here? And uh, it was challenging. All of this extra stuff was challenging. And I would say that I experienced a great deal of anxiety during that time, getting this all sorted out. So fast forward to kindergarten and getting into the school system. Prior to kindergarten, we saw another speech therapist through our uh, municipality where we live in Delta. So through the um, health unit. So we saw a speech therapist there. It was covered um, financially. And we only went, I think, 
one or two times because what we were told from there is she's entering kindergarten. She'll get picked up by the system if it's necessary. And here are your things to work on and see what happens in kindergarten. So we went into kindergarten. And for those of you that have been through kindergarten or have experienced have experienced that, you meet with the teachers. You are letting them know about your child. Um, I was very forthcoming with our kindergarten teacher about my daughter's speech therapy, what was going on, tubes in her ears, et cetera, et cetera. I also gave our documentation to the school, to the principal, to the office to have in her record explaining this is what we've been dealing with. We, you know, are are cognizant of the fact that she might need support and just let us know, right? Let us know what we can do. Let us know if there's services for her. And then we kind of left it at that. This is where the advocating piece comes in because I thought I was advocating for her. I really thought like that was it. I've, I've laid it out for them. I've told the teacher, you know, let me know how things are going. I've let the school know. The principal knows. I'm writing emails. Um, and so and I thought that was it. And I thought I could just really kind of sit back and, and trust that uh, she would be taken care of, which unfortunately was not the case. So we would go for parent teacher conferences. I would follow up. I'd say, how is she doing? what's going on. And everything was fine. Like we were being told everything's fine. You know, she's shy, but she's coming out of her shell. She's making, she's making progress. And then it was after the Christmas break where we, where we got this sort of like slap in the face where the teacher was like, Hey, I need you to sign this release form uh, for, for your daughter to be assessed by speech, speech therapy at the school which was coming out of left field for me because as far as I knew, everything was great and she was improving. We had noticed improvements at home. Um, yeah. So this then started this whole other process of extreme frustration for us as parents. Um, the conversation was something like, why is this coming up now out of the blue? And the teacher was saying, you know, we actually didn't have access to a speech therapist at the school. There was no speech therapist. Um, we're getting one, you know, that's coming on board on a rotating schedule. And so, you know, we think that Quinn should be assessed. Um, she is having these problems, X, Y, and Z, which we had not been told of, told about. And uh, so I was just, I was so upset. And then there were some more emails. So dialogue with the principal you know, saying what is going on here. We're almost at the end of kindergarten now. Like I'm, I'm quite disappointed. I want to say we, this was around March of her kindergarten year and maybe even later, to be honest, it, it could have been later because I remember saying now we're in the end of the year and you're telling me she needs all this support and she needs speech therapy with, with the school's speech pathology department which, you know, now you have, which I guess you didn't all year. Um, and my frustration was, I wish I had been told that she needed the support because we were very clear about the fact that we would be happy to take her for private speech therapy outside of the school. So this is where the advocating piece comes in. I would say that if there is anything like this, whether it's speech, it could be 
It could be so many different things, but just don't let it go. Like follow up, um, ask more questions. I know that we had like a lot of stuff going on in our lives at the time. We were moving and there was just, we were busy, right? Life, life happens. And we just, we trusted the school. We trusted the teachers and not to say that that is a bad thing, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And so, yeah, I was quite upset with the fact that we had missed out on all of this time where she could have been, we could have been taking her for support. And um, she was just being offered support at the end of the kindergarten year. So she started speech therapy at school. Uh, She would go once or twice a week. This was until the end of the school year, which wasn't a lot of time. So they did encourage us to, you know, spend our summer working on stuff and seeking private speech therapy over the summer, uh, which again was really frustrating. But we did that. And then come grade one, there was just like no messing around. I was like, okay, who's the speech therapist this year? We want to be in right away. Um, She needs this attention like right from the get-go here. And I basically won't be accepting anything other than that. Uh, and, And that's what happened. Her grade one year was fantastic. She had the most wonderful teacher ever the most supportive teacher for her and there was a new speech therapist at the school who was there on a consistent regular basis and she was able to see her and meet with her uh, usually once a week sometimes more um yeah so that was grade one and i will say this grade one we just wrapped up and obviously in march we did not go back to school and our speech therapy was over zoom which I'm so thankful for because Quinn had been making so much progress and really developed this relationship with her speech pathologist. Um, And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, everything is falling to hell here. What are we going to do? She's going to be set back. I'm not a a speech pathologist. I don't know what she should be working on. But the school really came through the speech pathologist really came through. She was, she is such a wonderful, a wonderful woman. And she had Zoom speech pathology every week on a consistent basis. And, uh, and it was great. So for Quinn on the hearing and ear side, fluid side, she's actually great. She had one incident where she um, got an ear infection and blew one of her eardrums. This was like, just a regular old ear infection because she had a cold, um, but that caused some issues. So we were back in the cycle of seeing the ENT every few months where she had had a good chunk of time where we didn't have to go because after the tubes came out, they want to see like three good visits where there's nothing going on. And she achieved that. So we were kind of, you know, cut free to carry on unless something came up. So we had not seen the ENT for her for quite some time until this eardrum thing, which was very scary. And again, involved advocation because she was prescribed the wrong dose of medication. Um, wasn't strong enough. I mean, how, how are, as a parent, are you supposed to know, but it was the wrong dose for her weight, um, and for the ear infection. So it ended up getting worse instead of better, blew her eardrum. We ended up in the hospital. Um, it was the whole thing. Like being a parent is so, it's so tough because, you know, you know what you know, 
And like, you don't know what you don't know. And there's, there's no way for us to know, you know, what is the right dose of amoxicillin that um, a six-year-old should be having or a five-year-old should be having. But it was another poor, <laughs> poor experience. So she was back in that ENT system uh, for a little bit. And now she's just on a, a maintenance check. She's going every six months with uh, when our little guy goes and our little guy is going every three months. So we are still with the ENT. So let's fast forward to our third born. So our little guy, Blake, oh, Blake, <laughs> he is the best but he has fluid in his ears. So he was also a C-section baby. Um, so, you know, there's that C-section thing again. I have to think there's something to that, the whole lack of compressing um, that allows fluid to kind of hang out there. So here's the thing with Blake. He was born on a Friday, on a Friday morning. And normally that hearing test, right, that initial screen would either happen that same day or possibly the next day. When you have a C-section, you're there, you know, typically longer. So there's more time for them to come in. However, we were heading into the weekend. So there was no one around to do the hearing screen. So we were sent home. We were discharged. We went home. Um, and he had to go for his first screen at the health unit. I was already very anxious about this, <laughs> given our given our history. And, um, you know, sure enough, we go to our first test, which is now the initial screen. So the same test that they do in the hospital. And he failed that test. So I mean, I hate to say the word failed the test, but he did. He failed the test. <laughs> he did not pass the test. It indicated that there was fluid in his ears. So then they want to do more investigating right now at the health unit it was the same the same woman doing that initial test that we had met before and then we were being you know passed on to the same audiologist who we've now known for years with my daughter so she came in we were there for testing and she came in and basically said hey like you know don't panic she just kind of gave it to us straight and said this is probably going to be an issue of fluid in the ears. Like he likely doesn't have any major, major issue structurally going on. Given your history, this is probably just a hereditary thing. Um, and, and told us, you know, not to worry, but we're, we're going to be kind of taking the same steps. We're going to be doing the same thing that we did with Quinn. So we go back after three weeks, I guess, three weeks, baby's now just over three weeks old um, for that further testing. Yes, the fluid's still there. Um, yes, it's just residual. And so instead of waiting even more, we just immediately went to see our ENT because we were already patients there. They know us very well. Um, so Blake was referred to the ENT. Yes, fluid in the ears, all the same tests, all the same wait and see, right? It, there's not much you can do when they're little, little, other than hope that it's going to improve on its own. So he is now a year and a half and COVID has been a bit of an issue in terms of actually being seen. And I should add here that when I say there's not much to be done when they're little, little, um, there are some different, differing opinions on that. So 
We have not tried any of these things. We didn't try any of these things with Quinn. However, maybe if we have access to them, we will try with Blake. But uh, craniosacral therapy, uh, chiropractic work, um, those are a couple of the like top recommendations of maybe some uh, procedures, some work, some physical work that can be done to help with fluid in the ears uh, before you end up kind of resulting to surgery. So just as a sidebar there, I don't want to leave that out completely. (laughs) But back to COVID being an issue and COVID, you know, is a bit of an issue with, um, with seeing practitioners in general. However, we have recently been able to get back into audiology. And that was even a bit of a challenge. So Prior to COVID and things kind of shutting down, we were at the ENT just for our regular um, follow-up appointment where it was like, you know, yes, he's got fluid in the ears, but he's still young. Let's just see what's happening. Um, He can still hear, you know, his hearing isn't being greatly impacted. And the advice is, of course, to as he is developing to watch and observe his speech development and how he's doing, because that's going to show you like how well is he hearing and picking things up. You know, they would ask things like, um, is he responding to sound? Uh, Does he turn when you call his name? Stuff like that. And I mean, if anyone, anyone who spends any time with Blake knows that he he can hear you (laughs) Um, and he's communicating quite well. So prior to COVID, as I mentioned, our ENT is very uh, efficient, very on the ball. And so they like to just get the hospital paperwork going in advance. So the idea was we'll wait and see. As he gets older, uh, if it looks like, you know, there is still an issue and it's impacting his hearing, let's have the paperwork in place for surgery so that we can just jump on it and you won't have to wait then. So we're put on the wait list for surgery at that time. Now, the um, our ENT told us that the rules or the recommendations for surgery for this type of thing is they don't want to do surgery until um, a child is at least two years old because of the um, anesthesia, putting them to sleep, unless, unless it's something that is urgent. So, you know, our, our ENT was basically saying, if you feel it's urgent, if you need to push it forward, then we can send this um, to Children's Hospital. You know, he has a colleague there that can can do it sooner. But that wasn't us. We're happy to pump the brakes on surgery and, and you know, wait until he's two. So he has had a phone follow up since COVID, um, where the ENT basically just called us. Hey, how are you guys? How's he doing? What's going on with this hearing? Is his speech developing? Et cetera, et cetera. And then it was like, okay, well, wait and hear from us, which is usually on a three-month track, although we have not had a follow-up since then. And it's been three months. We did, however, get a phone call from surgery at Surrey Memorial. So where we live, um, we are in Delta, BC, and um, our ENT operates from Surrey Memorial. And so they called us to ask us, you know, are you wanting to move forward with surgery? What's going on? And we basically said, we don't know because we haven't had a proper follow-up. No one's looked in the baby's ears in a while. And so we're not sure. At that point, they also let us know, like, we're not booking anything right now. 
there's so much backup because of COVID, uh, which we were just fine with. But I did say to surgery, you know, we'll try and get in touch with the ENT and we'll try to get an assessment from audiology because he hasn't been tested now in a little bit, in a few months. So we call audiology at the health unit and let them know, you know, the hospital's calling about surgery. They need an update. Is it urgent? Like, is he, is he um, ready to be scheduled for this surgery? They let us know that they were not seeing patients unless it was um, this type of scenario where it was urgent in a sense that the hospital is looking for more information so they can also plan. So we got in to see the audiologist who is um, lovely. And again, now we've been seeing her for like more than six years. So um, we know her quite well and she's so great with the kids. So Blake had his testing done just a couple weeks ago and he still has fluid in his ears. <laughs> it hasn't cleared. It hasn't cleared. However, it's not impacting his hearing uh, as much as what was happening with my daughter. And I mean, that's just obvious from their development, but also just from what they're seeing in his ears and how he is responding to the testing. So the audiologist was saying one ear has more fluid than the other and is being impacted more than the other. However, he's responding well to the tests. Doesn't look like he's experiencing a lot of um, like deficits, hearing deficits. And her general thought was, you know, you're probably not going to have uh, surgery to place a tube in one ear, which I mean, is true. <laughs> so all the information would be sent to our GP, as well as to our ENT. And we're just waiting to hear from the ENT as to when we can actually get an eyes on in person follow up to see how things are. And I will ask my questions about the one ear and like, you know, what we should do. Um, just a little bit of info about fluid in the ears. So again, Blake has not ever had any issues with his ears, no ear infections, nothing like you wouldn't know there was fluid in his ear unless, you know, the doctor looks in his ear and says, I see fluid in there. And so this is quite different than fluid in the ear. You might you might have heard of like swimmer's ear, right? Or like wet ear or something, which is when fluid is in front of the eardrum and it's causing infection that way. Um, and that's usually just like antibiotics and and that type of thing. So in this situation for both Quinn and Blake, the fluid is present behind the eardrum. And so it's not being cleared. It's sitting there. And then as it gets thicker, right, as I mentioned, over time, it gets thicker. It ends up creating like if you can imagine fluid with sound would vibrate more when that fluid starts to thicken up and become stickier. It doesn't allow for as much vibration. So sound going into the ear, you want it to reverberate off of that eardrum. And when there's fluid behind there, it impacts the ability for the eardrum to do what it needs to do. So it's fluid behind the ear. It's um, it's just there. It's present. It's hanging out. It, it has nothing to do with uh, like the kids can swim. They can have baths. There's no issues with getting water in the ear and being able to clear it. This is fluid that has been present since birth behind the eardrum and not not clearing out. 
So when they place tubes, it's a really tiny, tiny cut into the eardrum where they drain out the fluid and then place the tube for that ventilation to um, to occur and to prevent fluid from, again, getting stuck behind there. Um, yes, I'm I'm basically a professional here <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to this. That's really it. I will update you guys on uh, on little Blake if he needs surgery. I'm really hoping that he does not need surgery, although now that I've been through it and I know how, you know, quick it is and how honestly, like how beneficial it was. It was so beneficial for my daughter's hearing. It was like night and day flip a switch and suddenly she can hear. Um, So if it comes to that, we will, of course, do it. We would move forward with it. If the ENT thinks that it's going to, um, it's going to be a thing. What we've been told is that like fluid in the ear is not necessarily a problem, right? It all has to do with functionality of the ear, how well the ear is able to receive sound um, and create, you know, transfer the sound from what I can understand, like through the nerve to the brain, all of that stuff. Um, So you can have functional hearing with some degree of fluid in the ear. So it's not necessarily like you have to have surgery, you have to get it out. It's going to really again, be a wait and see, see how his speech is, see how his pronunciation and, and all of that is. And maybe it'll mean speech therapy for him. Maybe it won't. I'm not sure. (laughs) So yes, ears, noses, and throats. We haven't had any issues with tonsils or adenoids, which is great news so far. Um, But yeah, if you have any questions at all about any of this, I know there's a lot of information in there. And if you've made it through the whole episode, thanks for listening. Um, It's really, it's just my personal experience with this after dealing with it consistently for so many years. Um, Takeaways are really advocate, 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 right? When it comes to the whole speech path and my daughter kind of being missed, um, man, that happens a lot in schools. And I hear it in in different ways, right? Different capacities, like children are kind of falling through the cracks and things are getting missed. And man, that is, you know, that, that sucks. So advocate for your children, speak up, even if you feel like you're being annoying. Like I, I have gone back and read the emails, those initial emails that I sent to the principal of our school. And um, yeah, you know, I was definitely relaying (laughs) my points in a strongly worded way. But um, no regrets, because it did lead us to action being taken. And you know, my daughter, my daughter getting the support that she needs. So don't be shy to do that. Um, If you are in a situation where you are being seen for this, or you're wondering if you should be seen for this, um, ask your healthcare practitioner, right? Like, inquire about it. Sometimes we need to like push a little more than we think we should. Um, I know for me, I wanted to sort of like trust the professionals and everything, have everything be okay. But um, sometimes we just, we need to uh, speak up a little bit more and um, not worry about how that's received. Yeah. So I will link up in the show notes, uh, contact information for me. And if you have any questions, please let me know. 
If you like what we're doing here on Motherwell, please leave us a review. And of course, you can follow us on social media. Instagram is where we hang out a lot. Our handle there is at the underscore motherhood project. Uh, you can visit our website at themotherhoodproject.ca. And I will be back soon with another episode. Um, we are getting our kids, our two older kids, uh, squared away with school. So if you've seen what I've written lately about uh, content production and being someone who cannot seem to batch any of my work in terms of social media, podcast recording, it's just not conducive to my lifestyle at the moment. So I don't have like six episodes ready to go, um, which I'm hoping will, you know, maybe change a little bit here when the kids get back into a routine. But thank you for all of your support. Thank you for all of your kind comments and testimonials and messages I get sent. It is just so wonderful to, um, to hear from you guys. And I look forward to chatting again soon. Take care, guys, and be well.